Welcome to the Hills Church Sermon Podcast. Located in El Dorado Hills, California, it is our mission to help others find and follow Jesus. We hope this message inspires, encourages, and uplifts you today. Amen. Well, we are, we are in a series where we are looking at the vision of our church, who we want to be as Hills Church. And, you know, vision is not just about, hey, where are we headed or where are we going? It's about who we're becoming as individuals and as a church community. Who are we becoming on the way? Who has God called us to be on this journey from the promise to the future, from where we are today to where he's called us to be as a church? And last week, and really every week, I've been just rehearsing and saying over and over again this this one verse as, as to why we exist as a church. And it's so important, and I'll say it again. Exodus 9, verse 16. This is what God speaks over all of us. And he says it over and over and over again through the first 15 chapters of Exodus. He says, for this reason, for this purpose, I've raised you up to show you my power so that, why? So that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So that the name of God would be proclaimed in all the earth. That's why we exist, not just as a church, but as humans who are created in the image of God. As humans who are made in God's image and likeness, we are meant to reflect back to the world who God is and what he's like. We're called to live lives of worship. And so last week, we we started to dive into this reality. What does it look like for us to live a life of worship? Well, actually, it's really practical. You know, it's not just us gathering together on Sunday mornings in this place of worship to lift up the name of Jesus. It's also about how we live our lives. Worship really starts when you leave this room. It doesn't just happen in this room. It begins when you head out of this place into the rest of your lives. Amen? That's where worship starts. That's the battleground of worship. That's where we say, Lord, this is, this is where I show you are the priority of my life. You are the one that matters most to me. You have the top place in my heart. And so these values are, are not the complete statement of faith for our church. If you, want, if you want to see that, you can go to our website. You can find these on our website. But these are some values that we want to embody. These are some things that we really care about as a church. And if you missed last Sunday, I would encourage you to go on our YouTube page and you can catch up on that sermon. You can watch that. I really dove into these a little bit deeper. But I'll read through them quickly just as a reminder. Number one, and most of these have been around for a long time for us, but we, we felt like we needed to clarify some of these and tweak a few. But number one, Jesus is our lead story and we exist to worship him. We want everyone to know the hope that is in Christ. We want everyone to know the forgiveness, the peace, the joy, the new life of Jesus. And our lives are meant to be an expression of worship to him. That's number one. Number two, we believe in radical grace. We believe the whole message of the gospel, the good news of the gospel is that God says, hey, come as you are. God doesn't say, oh, hold up. 
You need to clean up your act before you come to me. You gotta get some things right before you come to me. You see, religion says this, uh, make sure you get your act together and then maybe one day God will like you. But the reality of faith in Jesus Christ, the reality of radical grace says, no, 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 come as you are. Right here, today, turn to Christ and the forgiveness and the love and the mercy, the unconditional grace of God is available to you. And then once you receive that grace, you're able to begin to live differently. You're able to walk out this journey of new life with Jesus. So we believe in radical grace. We believe the Bible is the source of truth. We believe the scriptures are the inspired and inerrant word of God, and this is where true north lies. This is where we not only understand what God has done for us, but we understand the whole history of humanity and the history of God's salvation. What went wrong with the world and how God is redeeming it, making it right, and where all things are headed. The Bible is a source of truth. We believe in the power of prayer. This past week, we had a worship and prayer night. Several hundred of you came out and joined us for that night. It was an amazing night, and we have prayer walls at the back of the room that are filling up with people's prayer requests. Every week during our staff meetings, we pray over those, and I just wanna say prayer is, it is the way that God has invited us. He said, partner with me. There are things that I want to do in your life and in the world. Just talk to me about it. Just have a conversation with me. You don't have to say all the right words in all the right order. You just need to come to me and talk to me about it and invite me in through prayer. We believe God works through that. We believe that we're called to serve others by unleashing compassion. We have something coming up very soon called Love the 50 Week, and we have initiatives all throughout the year where we're either passing out backpacks or we're providing Thanksgiving dinners or we are hosting a Christmas shop for families in need, and Love the 50 Week is just a, a packed full one week of just radical compassion that we are unleashing to all these different communities along the 50 corridor because that is that we believe that's how the gospel goes forward in one of the most powerful ways is through practical acts of compassion. We choose sacrificial generosity. I spoke a little about that earlier. It's how we worship. It's how the gospel advances. It's how we partner with the cause of the church. We are for the family, which I, I dove into last week, and that's so important in this cultural moment. We are better together. We believe in purpose over preference. We are owners, not attenders. And I, I talked about that as well last week, just this idea of, man, church was never intended to be a spectator sport. Come on, somebody. We gotta get out of the bleachers and we gotta get on the field, you know? It's not like the Georgia Bulldogs where you gotta make the team. because they're so good, okay? They're better than your team. <laughs> if you're new to this church, you'll catch on this fall. Okay, but here's the deal. Jesus is like, you're on the team. If you've put your faith in me, it's time for you to step into what I'm calling you to do. You, you don't have to go to seminary. You don't have to get a master's degree. You, you just, you gotta be like Todd. You gotta fall down on your knees in, in the darkest moments of your lives and say, Lord, I give up. I'm done trying to do this on my own. 
Lord, I need you. I can't save myself. I can't fix myself. And God's like, you're in. <laughs> Let's go. Start to share your story. Start to serve others. Start to be a part of this community that is the church. These are some of the things that we think are so important, but I wanna talk about this for a second as well. Because oftentimes when you think about vision or where you're headed or a journey ahead of you, you think about a map. I need to look at this map to get where I'm going. And I'll, I'll never forget when my family, we moved out here, gosh, a little over six years ago. And my kids at the time were four and six years old. And now they're 10 and almost 13. I almost have a teenager. My mind is, I can't, I just can't get around that, right? And uh, I remember when they first moved, when we first moved out here from Atlanta, Georgia, I just remember having a conversation with them because the whole reality for a little child, for a young child of distance and time just doesn't connect, right? And I remember some early conversations with them where we had just moved to California. We were a month or two in, and oftentimes on Tuesday or Thursday nights, we would get together with my parents, my, my family. So that was Tia and Grandpa, my mom and my dad to the kids. And they would say, hey, Dad, let's go get a pizza tonight with Tia and Grandpa. And I would say, well, um, that's going to be hard because they live in Atlanta, and Atlanta's across the country, so we can't just drive 15 minutes to the restaurant and meet them there for dinner tonight. You know, we have to do, put a little more planning into when we hang out with Tia and Grandpa or Mimi and Pops, and, and they were just like, Why? Didn't you, like they flew on an airplane here. I drove across the country with the dog, praise God. And they didn't really have a full understanding of like how long that drive was. And so I thought, well, maybe it'd be helpful to show them a map, you know? And I'm like, hey, here's what America looks like. I mean, you're trying to explain this to a four and six-year-old. Just try it, okay? It's a lot of fun. And so here's America, and here's where we used to live in Atlanta, Georgia, and, you know, dad had to, had to drive on all these roads all the way across to get all the way over here where we live now in, in California. And my kids looked at me and they're like, perfect. There's a road that goes right to where they are. What's the big deal? Let's just hop in the car and drive like you did, you know? Well, kids, that's, you know, this is a small map, but it's a big country. It's like really far away. And then I'll never forget, uh, I think it was our first spring break here. We went down to visit uh, Lindsay's brother who lives in San Diego, and we had to drive all the way down to San Diego, which it's like a 10, 12-hour drive, depending on LA. If you know, you know. And I remember, you know, we finally got there. And, and my kids, they ran up to Uncle Andrew, Lindsay's brother, and they just said, Uncle Andrew, where do you live? And he goes, well, I live in San Diego. And I'll never forget, I can't remember if it was my daughter or my son, but I think it was my daughter. And she goes, oh, wow, well, we just moved to California. San Diego is really far away. And he goes, well, I live in California too. And Lily Hope and Sawyer were like, no, you don't. 
We left California like this morning at 6 a.m. and we drove to San Diego. You live in San Diego. We live in California. <laughs> you know, and then I'm, I'm like, all right, let's try the map again. Maybe the map will help. Like there are cities inside states. And when you begin to move from like, you know, interstates to the reality of cities and states with a four and six-year-old, you're, you're off the grid at that point. There is no shot you're getting through. And I'll never forget on the way back, just further proof that this whole idea didn't land for them. I, I, you know, we're driving, it's been four or five hours, we've gotten through the grapevine, we're on I-5 going up through the Central Valley, and, and Lily Hope and Sawyer, they're like, Dad, when are we going to get back to California? We left San Diego forever ago, and I was like, kids, we're already in California. They're like, What? What does it even mean? No, we're not. We're going to California. I'm like, no, kids, we're, we're in California. We're just, we're headed home to Sacramento. You're already in California. You're just headed home to Sacramento. And, you know, it took a few years for that to sink in and for them to understand what that meant. But I thought, man, what, a, what an amazing picture of Exodus. What an amazing analogy for the reality of where we are and what God has done for us. And if you're taking notes, I, I want to title this talk today, Life in the Messy Middle. What's the vision for our church? What's the vision for us to become the people of God that he's called us to become? Because we live life right now in the messy middle. And here's what I, I mean by that, because if you look at the story of the Exodus, you remember the story begins in Egypt when the people of God are in bondage. They're enslaved to the Egyptians. And then God does miracle after miracle to eventually set them free. He parts the Red Sea and they, they head towards the promised land, but God brings them out of Egypt. And, and when you think about the grand scheme of the Christian life, this deliverance from bondage in Egypt, right, this represents the cross of Jesus Christ. This represents your faith in Jesus Christ. It represents what has already happened. So it's already done. You're already in California. Praise God. You're here, okay? You're in California. You've already received the, the faith and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ through the gospel, right? But... Now, you're in this place called life. And in life, in the reality of the wilderness, which is where they go, and the majority of the book of Exodus, 25 chapters, is the story of them in the wilderness. It's, it's this in-between. It's life in the messy middle. It's where they face challenges. It's where they're, they're prone to wander from God. And in this life, there are, there are dangers, there are things that pull us away from God, away from our faith. There are temptations to prioritize other things above Jesus, loving God and loving others. 
There's difficulties, there's pain, there's suffering, there's death, there's betrayal, there's all the things that we all experience in this life. And, and on top of it all, what we understand is there's this verse in 1 Peter 5, 8, be alert and of sober mind because your adversary, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. There's a spiritual warfare going on as well in this reality of life. And so here we are in the middle and God has already given us the gift of radical grace. He's given us new life, but we have to hang on to the fact that, hey, we're still looking forward to the day when Jesus returns to the promised land. So when he returns and wipes away every tear, makes all things new. It's part of what it means to be a Christian is we have faith for a day when our Savior returns and makes all things new. And so we have this reality of already we've been saved by grace, but we're also living in the tension of not yet. And I remember in my systematic theology class, in, uh, in seminary, my professor sharing with me this theological tension that we all live in. And they actually title this, they call it the already not yet. I thought, wow, those are massive theological terms. <laughs> I was like, thank you actually for making that so simple. We live in the tension of already and not yet. Anybody ever experience this tension in life? You know, it's hard. It takes faith to believe that, man, I'm a new creation in Christ. It takes faith to believe that you're forgiven and loved by grace and by grace alone. It takes faith to believe what God has done for you. And it really takes faith to believe that, man, there is a day coming when all things are made new. Because I look around right now and, gosh, there's a lot of pain. There's a lot of hardship and suffering and trial there's a lot of things that I'm uncertain about, and so we live in this tension of the already, not yet, and that's where life is lived. That's where we learn to worship. That's where we learn to follow Jesus and live by faith. That's what life in the wilderness looks like. We're already in California, but we're on the way to San Diego. <laughs> we're on the way to wherever God has us. We're not quite there yet. And so friends, what is, what is God's purpose for the wilderness? What, what is God doing in us? And there's some things that, um, there's some words that the Lord uses in Exodus. He, he says there's three reasons, there's three different things that I want my people to do when they get to the wilderness. Number one is I want them to feast. I want them to hold a feast to me, a festival to God. I thought, I love that word. I love that he uses that word. The second one is to serve. God says, let my people go. Through Moses and Aaron, he, he sends them to Pharaoh and he says over and over again, let my people go that they may serve me. I need them to be a witness to the world. Pharaoh, right now, they're serving you. They're making bricks for the kingdom of Egypt. I need them to serve my purposes as my people for the kingdom of God. And the last thing he says is, let my people go that they may worship me with their very lives. I mentioned these last week, but I felt like, man, 
we got to dive into this. We got to understand what does it mean for us in our daily lives to feast, to serve, and to worship. And that's what we're going to look at. Here's where I get this from in Exodus chapter 5, verse 1. The first one, this idea of feasting. After this presentation to Israel's elders, Moses and Aaron went and spoke to Pharaoh. They told him, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, let my people go so that they may hold a feast in my honor in the wilderness. That they may hold a feast in my honor in the wilderness. Okay, what does this idea of feasting represent? Well, it represents our personal journey from bondage to freedom. It's our personal journey from bondage to freedom. The feast is the process of letting go of Egypt. You're all in process of letting go of Egypt, of letting go of your former life. If you've taken that step of faith in Jesus, you're still in process of letting that go, the old life, right? It's letting go of Egypt, learning to walk with Jesus, and living in the freedom of faith. That's what it means to feast, to treasure God above all else in the wilderness. And I thought about this because there was, there's this amazing passage of scripture in John chapter six. And in John six, John five and six, there's the story of when Jesus feeds the 5,000. It's an amazing miracle that Jesus accomplishes. And after he feeds the multitudes, he as he often does, he retreats to prayer, but after that, he hops in the boat and he goes right across to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And here's what it says in John 6, verse 25. It says, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? When did you come to this side, right? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the bread. He multiplied the bread and the fish to feed 5,000. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? How do we find this eternal life? Just tell us what to do and we'll do it. Give us a list of rules. Give us religion. We, look, we've been following the rules for thousands of years. We have gotten really good at this, Jesus. Tell us the rules. Tell us what works we should do and we'll do it. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. You wanna know what to do? You wanna know how to find eternal life? You wanna know what it means to be saved? This is the work of God. He said to them that you believe in him who he sent. That's it. Believe in Jesus. Believe that God sent his only son because he loved the world so much to die for you. And he rose again from the dead that you would have new life. He goes, the work of God is to believe in me that I'm the savior of the world, that I'm gonna do the work that you could never do, that I'm actually gonna obey the full measure of the law and I'm gonna die as a sacrifice for your sins. And then he goes on and he says this, don't miss this. The book of Exodus is quoted more times 
in the New Testament than any other book from the Old Testament. John 6, 31 to 36, he says this, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. That was literally the bread from heaven that showed up on the ground every morning so that the people of God wouldn't starve in the wilderness. Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. Jesus is like, the true bread from heaven, not just the manna on the ground, not just me multiplying the loaves of bread so that your stomachs are full. He goes on to say this, the bread of God is he, it's a person who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, we want that bread. That sounds great. Like, where do we find it, right? Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes, believes in me. That's the work of God, shall never be thirsty. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. This is Jesus. Using the book of Exodus, which all of them would be very familiar with. They've celebrated the book of Exodus and the Passover as a part of their life since before they could even speak. It's the people of Israel, and he's saying to them, I'm the bread from heaven. And here's the deal. If, if you believe in me, you will never be hungry again. You will never be thirsty again. And they're just thinking on physical terms. They have no idea that Jesus is saying, I've come to quench a hunger and a thirst inside of all of you that you are going to try to fill. You're gonna try and quench that thirst and satisfy that hunger with all the stuff of the world and you're still gonna be hungry and thirsty until you come to me. I love what John Eldridge says. He says this amazing quote in one of his recent books. He says, the exodus of the people of Israel, that means their deliverance from Egypt, and their journey through the Sinai Desert is one of the greatest survival stories of all time. It's an incredible survival story. More than two million people wandering through a land of sand and barren rock, homeless, looking for the land of abundance, a place to call home. When will life be good again? There was no real resources of food in that desert. Water was about as scarce as, as it is on the surface of the moon. A barren wilderness, a land of deserts and pits, a land of drought and death where no one lives or even travels. This is more than just a moment of history. This is recorded in scripture for us as one of the greatest analogies of human experience. This is, a, this is an analogy. It's a, it's a picture of our life, our journey from bondage to freedom, from barrenness to the promised land. Ultimately, it is the precursor to our journey of salvation from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God. And here's where he brings it home. It's a story about the primal drive for life. Where will we take our thirst? Where will we take our cravings, our hunger? 
Friends, the wilderness is a place where you and I learn what it means to turn to Jesus with the deepest desires of our hearts. The longing for intimacy, the longing for identity, for peace, for meaning, the deepest longings of our heart, the cravings and the hunger and the thirst of our heart. Every day we wake up and the things that drive us out into the world is actually our craving for meaning, for purpose, for success, for identity, to make something of ourselves, to find out who we are, to find acceptance, to find joy, to find happiness, to find peace. And Jesus goes, you're gonna keep running your whole life and you're gonna keep coming up thirsty and hungry at the end of the day until you turn to me, until you learn what it means to actually receive the bread from heaven and drink of the living water that only Jesus can offer. So number one, the wilderness, this life is where we learn to turn to Jesus with the deepest longings of our heart. It's where we learn to feast on him. Number two, we learn to serve in the wilderness. When we get delivered, there are moments where we want to go back to our old life. When we are forgiven, when we are set free by the grace of God, there's moments where, gosh, Egypt felt a lot better than the wilderness. There's a lot of moments where the people of God were like, Moses, why did you bring us out here? This is awful. It was way more comfortable in Egypt. And Moses is like, look, there's a bigger thing going on here. God is using you as his people to be a witness to the world. And you have to learn what it means not to serve Pharaoh, but to serve God with the rest of your lives on the way to the promised land. You're gonna be a witness to the world by how you live your life. Serving God is an act of worship. Living your life is an act of worship. To serve, he calls them into the wilderness to serve, is living out our distinct calling as the church, the people of God. That's like our top 10 values. How do we live this out in our real lives? Exodus 6, verse 6 and 7, it says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I love this, it says, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. Moses, tell them, me, Yahweh, I'm God. And I will deliver you from slavery to the Egyptians and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. You're gonna know me when you serve me, when you follow me, when you see what I do for you to provide for you in the wilderness. I love it because that word know in Hebrew is, there's actually a little line right above it. It's yod or yada, not to be confused with Yoda. But it's to know something or someone relationally and experientially or even to learn a skill. Kind of thought of it like this. There are certain things in your life and mine that you cannot learn on YouTube. I promise you, there are certain things that you can watch somebody else do a whole lot, but you have to actually try it for yourself to understand how to do it. 
it's like me when I tried to learn how to use a smoker for the first time, like to smoke a brisket or a rack of ribs for the first time. I watched countless videos. I had a friend who walked me step by step how to do it. And just a side note, just a, a tip on life, okay? If you're inviting people over for dinner, don't try a new recipe for the first time. It's like an awful moment to do that. And I'll never forget, I, you know, I'm trying to, to smoke a brisket for the first time and I've marinated it, I followed all the steps, but man, when I, when I eventually pulled that thing off the smoker and I, you know, you're ho- like, men, there's this moment of pride, right? You know, it's just one of those things we have to work out in the wilderness. But when you're slicing that meat open for the first time and everyone's kind of gathered around and they want to see, man, is it just going to fall apart? Is it going to be that perfect pink color in the middle? Like, this is going to be delicious, right, that moment. And I remember, like, you know, starting to kind of, like, saw on this piece of meat and it felt more like a tree limb. And I just kept going and I was like, oh, man, you know, sweetheart, call Domino's. Like, this is not, this is not going well. And, you know, eventually I got through it, but I, I had just charred that thing straight through. Later I learned about, you know, meat thermometers and all the rest of it, but I completely ruined it. And I was like, man, I followed all the instructions to a T. But there's some things in life that you just gotta do it. You have to learn how to do it by doing it. And that's this reality of to know something, to know someone, to understand God by learning what it means that he is going to provide for you every day. He's going to provide for you every moment of every day. Learning what it means to love him and love others through your daily experience of loving God and loving others, through forgiveness, through walking by faith. All of that is something you work out in the wilderness. And I'm I'm closing with this. I want to talk about worship just really quick. We're ending here. To know in Hebrew is not just to learn a skill, to learn how to follow God in the wilderness. It's also to know something or someone relationally and experientially. And not long ago, I was just personally in a really discouraged spot. Um, just one of those moments in life where, gosh, you fall, you fall back, and it's, it's, it's falling back into Egypt. It's falling back into the areas of your life. You're like, man, I felt like I was free from that. You're falling back into patterns of thinking or behavior that you know, man, this isn't, this isn't good for me. This isn't good for my family. There's just this weight of feeling like, man, I'm, you know, we've all been there. It's like you feel like you're failing as a father, as a husband, as a leader. In all these different areas of life, you just feel overwhelmed by the fact that you're like, gosh, I'm in a low spot right now. And the thing that leads us ultimately to worship, the thing that we, that we re, it's, it's the trigger point for knowing God in the deepest way is not when we come to God with our acts together. It's not when we come to God with everything just put together in our lives. It's when we come to him in those dark moments, the moments where you know, man, I am, I am failing right now on a lot of levels. And I remember I, I've been running more recently and I was 
I've been training for this race and, and part of this trail run that I'm going to do in a couple months, part of training for it is I got to be up at altitude. I got to run in the mountains. And, you know, running down here is one thing, but running up there, that's another thing. And I remember oftentimes I'll try and go on Fridays. It's my day off. I'll leave super early so I can get back before the kids get out of school. I mean, often it's like leaving at 3 or 4 a.m. so I can hit the trail by 5, 5.30 and then be back in time. And I remember I was just in this spot of discouragement. I had been running for a couple hours in total darkness, can't breathe, fully exhausted. And I was like, okay, I'm, I'm up by Carson Pass off 88. I'm like, all right, the goal for today is to run to the top, run, meaning walk and not hack up a lung, you know, get to the top of Round Top Peak and then come back, right? And um, it's a long run. And I remember just talking to God and working some things out and just in that place of lowness and frustration. And I'm making my way up the backside of Round Top uh, Mountain up there near the top. And this incredible thing begins to happen. The sun begins to rise. And, you know, I'm just in this spot and I'm like, Lord, like, I don't think I've been this low in a really long time. And, you know, it's like you're just running through the woods in the night and you're, you know, you know the mercy of God is a real thing. You know the sun is going to rise and you know his mercy is new every morning. And as I was making my way up to there, the sun begins to rise. And it's one of my favorite spots up there by Tahoe. It's a place called Hope Valley. And it just struck me. It was like, the sun is rising over Hope Valley. And I just thought to myself, what a picture. And it was almost like just the smile and the wink of God. He's like, right there, Jonathan. That's where my mercy meets you. In your lowest moment, when you are full of shame and full of regret and full of all the awareness of your brokenness, that's where my mercy is new. And I went from just this place of utter discouragement to a place of worship. And I'm like, thank you, Jesus. It's not about me even making it to the top of this mountain or not. It's not about me figuring out how to get right with you. Your mercy just is chasing me down out here in the middle of nowhere. And I thought about the Psalms where Jesus goes, or where David writes, he goes, it doesn't matter if I'm at the top of a mountain or the depths of the sea, your mercy finds me there. You chase me down there. And I thought, man, this is where worship comes from. It's in the wilderness. When the sun rises again, and, and don't miss this, Exodus 32 is quite possibly the most tragic chapter in the Old Testament. They've come out of Egypt. God has provided for them every day with bread from heaven on the ground, with water flowing out of rocks, with miracle after miracle in the wilderness. And Moses goes to the top of Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments. And he's up there for 40 days and 40 nights. And the people are like, well, he's dead. He's definitely dead. Aaron, we need a new God to worship. Make us a golden calf. And it's just tragic because you're like, what? 
You just saw God bring you through the Red Sea. You've, you've been sustained by him every day, and here you are quickly, so quickly, turning away from him to worship something that you're making with your own hands. You're turning to the wrong source, and Aaron does what they ask. And you know what hit me as I was reflecting on that? Amazing. Every morning, they were making the golden calf what was on the ground to give them food that day. Manna, bread from heaven. While they were worshiping the golden calf in the evening at the foot of the mountain where God was encountering Moses, while they're worshiping this idol, what came in the evening to feed them dinner? Quail from heaven. The two things that God provided for them every day until they made it to the promised land. And God says to Moses, after the golden calf incident, the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, this is my name, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love to a thousand generations. That's God. Friends, today, as we journey through this life, as we learn to worship in the wilderness, my heart for you is that you would know the God of mercy, that you would know the God of love who pursues you in your worst moments, in your deepest pain, in your greatest fear. And we close our service today as we always do by taking communion and remembering that Christ died for us didn't wait for us to get our act together. He died for us because he loved us. And this little piece of bread in your communion cup, it's a reminder of the bread from heaven, Jesus Christ. And the juice on the other side is a reminder that he gave his blood as the ultimate Passover lamb, the sacrifice for you. And friends, today we're gonna take communion and remember that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your mercy and your grace. And I pray right now, Lord, that you would help us to live lives of worship to you, even in the wilderness, that you would remind us the sun is always rising on Hope Valley for every person in this room. Thank you for listening to the Hills Church Sermon Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you haven't already, give us a rating so we know how this has impacted your journey with God. To learn more about us, visit our website at hills.church. We'll see you next time.